Second Kings chapter 13, if you have your Bibles. It is, uh, Sunday will be the last regular season day of the NFL. And when uh, I was listening to Sports Talk Radio recently, and, and they were saying that the strangest, uh, they have scenarios. If this team wins, if this team loses, if this team wins, if this team ties, if they da 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 and it's very interesting to listen to all the mathematical. And then they go into the draft picks. Who's going to play to lose and so that they can get a better draft pick based on all sorts of other factors and the mathematics of it and the whole uh, uh, whole way it works. The strangest is, of, of course, it has to be, is the Buffalo Bills. If they beat Miami, they win the second. They'll be the second seed in the AFC. If they lose to Miami and Jacksonville wins and the Steelers win and the, there's a tie in, a, in the Colts game, they're out. They go home. They don't even make the playoffs. It is the strangest scenario in a long time. As, as like I said, I, I uh, was listening to some sports talk radio and, and uh, they were saying this is the, the, the strangest scenario that they could either win or they could be out. So uh, my prediction, and they're playing Miami, which is a very good team uh, right now who has guaranteed a playoff berth. So I'm going to imagine that the Buffalo Bills are going to play with all their hearts on Sunday. Just imagining this, that when you hear about teams like the Baltimore Ravens that have already won the first seed, they're not playing their starters. They're resting everyone. They're... There, there's a, uh, they were reading a list of all the players that aren't playing this Sunday for rest, and so they're not hurt or anything like that. And it's amazing, but the Bills won't do that because the Bills have something in the stake. The text we're going to read, the king, I'm not sure if he totally understands all that is at stake. I don't think he does totally grasp this. But there's something about about having your heart wholeheartedly into serving God. I want to talk to you about that this evening. Second Kings 13, beginning in verse 14. And it says, when Elisha was at his last illness, King, some versions say Josiah, others say or Jehosh, and others say Jehoshos. Um, you work it out. But Israel visited him and wept over him. My father, my father, I see the chariots and the charioteers of Israel. And he cried. And Elisha, Elisha told him, get a bow and some arrows. And the king did as he was told. Elisha told him, put your hand on the bow. And Elisha put his own hand on the king's hand. And he commanded Open the wind, uh, open that eastern window. And he opened it. Then he said, shoot. And he shot the arrow. And Elisha proclaimed, this is the arrow of the Lord's, uh, arrow of the Lord, the arrow of victory over Armin. For you will have complete, con- uh, you, for you will completely conquer the Amorites at Fekit. And he said, now pick up the other arrows and strike them 
against the ground or literally keep shooting. Put them out on the ground. And the king picked up uh, and struck the ground three times. But then the man of God was angry with him. You should have struck the ground five or six times, he explained. Now you would have beaten Armin until he was entirely destroyed. Now you will be victorious only three times. I want to talk to you about the arrow of the Lord's deliverance tonight, or the arrow of the Lord's victory, because this is what we're dealing with here in our text. Very interesting, the king goes to see Elisha. This was not common. Usually kings went, uh, the prophets went to the king. Very rarely and almost never in scripture is a king visiting a prophet, especially on a friendly call. There's one earlier when they went to Elisha's house after, during the, during the siege by Samaria, uh, siege of Samaria and they went there, but uh, that was to kill him. But the king is making a friendly visit here. And I don't know that he's come for spiritual advice. I don't know if he's come for the absolute understanding of all uh, that God was going to speak to him. If God had just prompted him to go, we don't know. But he shows up at the, at the prophet's house. The prophet is old. Uh, many believe he was probably bedridden at this time. And in this scripture, it doesn't even mention a threat of war. But he, Elisha says, you have an enemy. Now we read this Wednesday, I'll read it again. First Peter 5.8, stay alert, watch out your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That we have an enemy and maybe uh, you've come and you're thinking, well, I, I, you know, it's just a good night. It's a Wednesday. You have an enemy of your soul. And we sometimes we forget that. He commands him to engage the enemy. You can't be passive. Well, if I just leave the devil alone, he'll leave me alone. No, he will not. Eve was minding her own business. And up he comes. He tells him to pick up a bow. Picture this. He's picking up the bow. It's almost like the prophet is talking to the king like a little child. Okay, get your bow, get your arrows, open the window. He's a king. You don't order kings like that. It says, now you shoot, and Elisha puts his hand on there. Matthew Henry says of this, the king, no doubt, knew how to manage a bow. Probably had, probably better than the prophet. The arrow was shot to have significance, uh, and it was divinely designed. But he says shoot and he treats him like a child this is what Matthew Henry says Elisha puts his hand on the king and has great expectations for the war against Syria the king is rather nostalgic we're seeing him in that nostalgia he's 
Uh, just functioning in the way he's functioning. He comes in all the chariots, the chariots and the charioteers of, of Israel. This is when Elijah was caught up and Elisha witnessed that. All the victories of the past he's talking about. Oh, wasn't that great? He says, Elisha doesn't even flinch. He says, but we have a war to fight now. We have a war to fight now. Adam Clark says that an ancient custom was to shoot an arrow or cast a spear into the country, an army which was to invade. Justine says that as soon as Alexander the Great arrived on the coast of Iona, he threw a dart into the country of the Persians. So what the prophet is telling the king to do is declare war. Declare war on the enemy of your soul. That we are going to fight, you are going to conquer, and you're going to take back. But people who don't want to fight get nostalgic. Oh, wasn't it great then? Really, you follow Elisha's life. They wanted to kill him a number of times. I have this personal theory. I call it the dead president theory. That I think you can see in Abraham Lincoln and John Kennedy. Both of them were probably... were uh, Lincoln was re-elected, but not very popular because of the war. John Kennedy probably wasn't going to be popular or wasn't going to be re-elected and his popularity was waning, but because they were both killed prematurely, we treat them like, oh my gosh, they were the greatest in history books. We can get very nostalgic. The prophet is pushing him forward, not backward. Let's go forward. Let's take the land. Let's take back what the devil has taken. Let's push into what God has for us. Second Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. We are humans, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not the worldly weapons, to knock down strongholds, which is what aphak means when uh, he says this is where you're going to defeat him, a stronghold. Knock down strongholds of human reasoning to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. The spiritual warfare that we're involved in, the reality of the devil and the enemy of our soul is very real. He says, you fire, you declare war. Don't wait for the devil. To, you take back. He puts his hand on him because, you know what? We're going to need supernatural strength. We're going to need more strength than you have. He says, you know what? You're not going to do this on your own. Psalms 144, verse 1, David writes and says, Praise the Lord who is my rock. He trains my hands for war and gives my fingers skill for battle. There's going to be times where we need strength. We need strength beyond to take on the, all that the strategies of hell would be against us. Then he tells him to smite the ground or, or keep shooting. 
tear up the ground. Verse 18, Then now pick up the other arrows and strike them against the ground. So the king picked them up and struck the ground three times. You know, I wish in life we knew every test. How many were ever in high school, or maybe you're still in high school, and you, your teacher gives you a pop quiz? Don't you hate that? I hated that. If you were a brainiac in high school, then you probably did well. But, you know, pop quiz is like, I didn't know this was going to be a test. I didn't know we were, and life is full of times we don't know is going to be a test. That God is looking at what you do in that moment, and it's going to determine blessing, favor. Why do we have tests? Well, some to that's to prepare for the future. A qualifying exam, nurses, lawyers, doctors, other trades that have to take a, a test to know that you understand uh, your profession, whether that's in the medical or in uh, plumbing or electricity or whatever it might be, or, med- or law, or as far as uh, you have to pass the bar exam. And all of those, we have those tests out there that prepare us for the future. There's tests to work things in and out. There's a company called UL. They're, they test everything. They were much more popular back in the day, but they would test everything, whether it is of quality, whether it is going to last, whether it's going... And if they put the UL certification that it had been tested, if you've ever been to an Ikea, they will have a glass booth with a chair in it. And on that chair, they'll have a machine that keeps sitting on it and getting up. And the count will go. How many times can you sit in this chair without it wearing out? And, you know, I've never seen it break, but, you know, I've seen the counts get up to five, six, seven, eight thousand. Because I've been in a lot of Ikeas. I've been in Ikeas in seven different countries. And you know what? They're all exactly the same. But anyway... Sometimes it's to show us and help us. I took a young girl back when we were pastoring in Chicopee to her driver's test. And she had done pretty well driving around. We would take her to the mall parking lot and have her drive. And she was getting comfortable with it. But then the something we didn't go over in the car was how to release the emergency brake, the parking brake. So she said it, and then she doesn't know how to release it. And the, the woman's there, and she's like, no, no, you don't pass. So she had to go back and get this, and this was for her help. And she studied a little bit more diligence. She gave herself more to it. The second time, she had confidence and the, got the same woman to give her the test. And she said, I can tell your confidence has come up because in the first test she failed, but it showed her what her issues were. God tests us from time to time. Sometimes that's for your future. 
Sometimes that's to work things in and out. Sometimes that is so he can help you. Genesis 22, 1. Now it came to pass that after these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to Abraham, he said, Abraham, and he said, here am I. Now this is not the test of sin, by the way. Sin will bring its own tests, and that's on you. Because you're the one who chose to sin. God's not testing you through sin. He doesn't test. You can read James. He doesn't tempt people. That's on you. But the reality is, is God tests people. And this was a test for the king. How much do you really want spiritual victory in your life? And he fires off three arrows and stops. And Elisha tells him, C minus. I didn't know it was a test. C minus. Verses 18 and 19. And then he said, pick up the other arrows and strike them against the ground. So the king picked up and struck the ground three times. But the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times, he exclaimed. Then you would have beaten Armin until you had entirely destroyed him. Now you will be, you will, uh, Be victorious only three times. See, the consequences of half-heartedness is seen in our king. The definition of half-heartedness is to be without enthusiasm or energy. It is a choice. Think about half-heartedness. It brings a loss of power and authority. This is clear in the scripture that the king is now going to have limited victories. Think about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. They were half-hearted towards uh, going into the promised land. And so they had the provision of God. They had the protection of God. They had the presence of God. They just didn't get the promises of God. That can happen to us. You've, if you've ever worked with someone who on the job, they're half-hearted at it. It's very frustrating. It's very, very frustrating. A man bought a company one time, and the company was not doing well. He buys his company and he's going to make a statement. The first day he's there in the, in the company, he's touring around. And he looks and there's a guy standing against the wall with his hands in his pockets just standing there. And he watches him for a minute. And another minute goes on. Another minute goes on. So finally, the man, the new owner, he says, do you know who I am? And the guy goes, no. So, well, I'm, I'm the new boss here. How much do you make a week? Does that make about $300 a week? Boss pulls out his wallet, gives him 300 bucks, says, you get out of here. Guy leaves. Company smirks because he tipped the pizza delivery guy really, really well. Half-heartedness, if you've ever worked with someone like that, is very frustrating. Like I mentioned, the teams that are desperate 
for a playoff berth. They're going to play wholeheartedly. This is choice. This has to do with self-discipline. The ability to bring in yourself to do what is needed to do. He becomes ineffective in spiritual battles. Verse 25 says, And then the Jehoshaphat, the son of Jehoshaphat, captured from Ben-Had, the son of Hazel, the towns that had been taken from Josiah's father. And he defeated Ben-Had on three occasions and recovered the towns of Israel. He did exactly what the prophet had, only three times. He did get a limited victory, but not complete victory. It also diminishes impact on others. This wasn't just about the king. This was about others. You know, I've seen men who have a call of God in their life, but no drive to fulfill it. And I wonder what city goes unreached because of that. They won't do what the fellowship does. They won't outreach. They won't, they won't come and pray and fast at night with the rest of the fellowship. But I want to be a pastor. How are you going to see revival if you're not doing what the fellowship... Anyway. There's a missed opportunity for deliverance. For victory. There's a failure to receive all of God's blessing. First. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, remember this, the farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. In context, that's about giving, but in principle, that's true in every area of life. What we put into it, it also hinders his journey of faith. Think about this. Matthew thirteen fifty eight, and not only did he, uh, and so Jesus only did a few miracles there because of their unbelief. It hinders the journey of faith, weakens our trust in God, because these are choices we make. It's not just for the gifted; it's choices we make. So let's talk lastly about overcoming. Half-heartedness. Hebrews 6.12 And then you will not become spiritually dull, dull or indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. The prophet is mad. He's angry. He exclaims, this means he yelled. What is your problem with your unbelief? That's what he does. This is a king. This king could have him killed. 
But he's dealing with him because the prophet wants to see victory. Elisha's seen his victories. You want to get nostalgic about the chariots? How about the time when the Assyrians all disappeared and the fast, and the fast, the famine was broken? The fast would be broken tonight, but the famine was broken. God wants you to have total victory. He wants you to overcome. He wants you to be blessed. He's not in heaven going, you just make it a little harder on you. Just make it a little, no, he wants you to be empowered for all spiritual battles and victories. Jeremiah 13, 29, 13, and you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your hearts. Putting your heart into serving God. The future that God has for you. Because we need power. We need power. There's a real enemy. He's trying to take the promises of God. Am I beating this steam right now? Yes. Because I believe God has so much more for not only us as a church, but you as an individual. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against a spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. He's bringing out there's all sorts of spiritual, but you can stand in the power of the Lord. You don't have to yield to temptation. You don't have to yield to constantly be in the ruts of debt and problems and this and that all the time. You don't have to. You can be blessed and have victory. You have to listen to what God wants you to do. David, his anointed king, the Philistines show up. God gives him a strategy when you hear the Wind in the trees, then you will attack from the rear, and he does this, he gets victory. And in Second Samuel 5.20, so David went to Bel-Parazim and defeated the Philistines there. The Lord did it, David explained. He burst through uh, my enemies like a, like a raging flood. So he named the place Bel-Parez, which means the Lord who bursts through. That word actually has the connotations of a dam breaking. I don't know if you've ever read about the Johnstown flood in Virginia, uh, in Pennsylvania rather, but the dam broke. And it just, it may, it just began to disintegrate, broke and flooded out the town. There were some amazing stories that came out of that for good and bad. One girl who got off the train to go for safety forgot that she had bought some new shoes, went back to the train and they found her down about three, four miles down in the train dead. Another story is a family ran up to their attic and a father was up there and, and the floor broke through. And two of his girls fell into the water. And he reached down in desperation and he grabbed two legs. And he's, his heart sank like, where's the other one? And when he pulled him up, he had one leg of one and one leg of the other. That bursting 
sudden, with great power, God wants to break through for us. But just firing token arrows isn't going to be enough. See, I believe personally God wants you to experience deliverance, provision, favor, abundant blessings. Impact on the kingdom, inspiring others, bringing souls in, fruit that remains. So we have to find the God who helps us. The lesson we can take away from the king here is that, you know what, God is looking and he, want, he, he delights in zeal. He delights in passion for the things of God. As we enter a new year, have you read your Bible yet? It's day three. Have you prayed? I, the only thing I haven't done this year is eaten. That's it. Other than that, right, the passion for these things, God blesses them. Isaiah 28, verse 6. For the spirit of justice for him who sits in justice and strength for those who turn the battle at the gate. That when the enemy's coming in and even gets right to the door, turn it back. Turn it back. Fight it back. That's what needs to happen. And it doesn't happen in a day, but it happens with commitment. Winston Churchill, and I close with this, made his very famous speech when they, in 1943, when they, the Germans had given up on the Blitz, they were just bombing now randomly, but they weren't going to invade England. They, Allied forces had defeated Italy and Germany out of Tunisia and back across the Mediterranean Sea, back into Europe. In fact, they were getting a stronghold at the very toes of the boot, if you will, of Italy. They were moving forward. And he made that famous speech. He said, this is not the end of the war. It is not the... He went on to say, it's not, you know, this is not the total victory. This is not, it is just simply the end of the beginning. They were turning the tide, but it was still going to be a struggle. In life, we're going to have spiritual battles. They're going to come and go. They're going to be all sorts of issues in life. But you can turn it back. And you know what? I can't promise you that in one day, it's all going to be just perfect roses. You'll never have another problem again. It'll be wonderful. But I can promise you, God in every way will help you in whatever you're going through. And that if you will have that zeal that God wants you to have about the things of God, God will bless you and he will bless you abundantly. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. You're here this evening, maybe you've come and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. No understanding of maybe, I had no understanding when I came into a place like this of how much the devil really does try to destroy people's lives and he uses sin to do it. 
had no understanding that there's a reality of heaven or hell. I was just living my life, just going about my business. But when I came into a place like this on a Sunday night and heard a preacher preach, I didn't understand it all, but I knew that God wanted me to get my life to Him and that He had something greater for me than I could imagine. And that this year will be 40 years of that. 40 years ago. God has something for your life. It begins with a simple prayer, a turning from your sin, turning away from those things that God says are not good or pleasing to Him. What are they? Just take the Ten Commandments. The Lord's name in vain. Stealing. Killing. Sex outside of marriage. God wants to forgive you. Help you. If you're here tonight, you're not right with God, I wonder if you'd slip up your hands and say, pray for me. I'm not saved. I'm not a Christian. I need to be born again. I don't understand everything, but I do understand God is dealing with my heart. And I need to get my heart right. Just slip up your hands very quickly. Thank God. Anyone else? Join an honest heart. Maybe you're backslidden. You once knew the Lord, but you turned away. Anyone at all? Very cool. Amen. Before we do anything else, you raise your hand. Would you look up at me? You mean that? Would you come? Someone's going to pray with you. Meet you right here. Just pray a simple prayer with you. Appreciate that. I need a man to come real quickly. Pray with our brother. Please, someone. Changing the call then to Christians. The lessons of Josiah. This, uh, just uh, for you, for your information, God dealt with me about the scripture during the fast. And I wrestled with it. 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 And uh, it, to get out of what it had. And then it, then it clicked. This was Josiah. Because this is our problem. God puts it in there, not to condemn us, but to cause us to realize we need to do serve God wholeheartedly. Let's all stand. These altars are open.
and let's thank him tonight. Father, we love you, God. We glorify you. Oh,